they just pick and choose what's important and what's not important. And what's important is basically cis white men, right? Period. More is there than simply a name change. That it's the identity of Radcliffe is being so submerged as to become virtually invisible. The historiography is that people in power write history. You're listening to The Annex, a podcast from 15 Minutes, the Harvard Crimson's weekly magazine, exploring how the histories of Radcliffe College and of women at Harvard are written, or perhaps more often omitted, a womanless history. I'm your host, Matteo Wong. The first episode of this podcast, which, by the way, I recommend listening to before continuing, explored controversy of the rebranding of the shorthand name of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study to be the quote-unquote Harvard Radcliffe Institute. While the university has stated the renaming is intended to celebrate Radcliffe's central relationship to Harvard, hundreds of alum have signed petitions opposing the renaming, alleging it contributes to the erasing of Radcliffe and women from Harvard's identity. You know, across these 20 years of classes, you know, from the 60th reunion to the 40th reunion, we find it very strange that none of us knows anyone who was consulted. Harvard University did not generate this Institute of Advanced Study. It was an existing location. This second episode will try to bring some of the history and identity of Radcliffe to light, in particular the struggle in the 1960s and 70s to merge Harvard and Radcliffe. And by tracing those historical power dynamics up to Radcliffe College's merger with Harvard in 1999, we'll have a fuller understanding of the historiographical power in the rebranding, of what's at stake in the Radcliffe name in 2021. I'm not even sure college is an accurate noun to describe Radcliffe as it was, starting as the Harvard Annex in 1879 and incorporated as Radcliffe College in 1894 under terms set by the Harvard Corporation. There were no faculty and limited resources. Instead, Harvard professors had to walk to Radcliffe about half a mile from Harvard Yard to teach. Co-ed classes only started in World War II due to limited resources, and the university just didn't switch back. Which is not to say that women were all of a sudden integrated. Women lived far away in the quad and had to run back for lunch, they had little interaction with faculty outside of class while Harvard men dined with the professors. Here's Marianne McDonald, class of 49. Well, the men I know mostly lived in Lowell House or Adams House. They had the experience of high table. Mm-hmm. Professors would come and they got to know them better. Right, we... We were definitely a lower order of life. Which continued into the 1950s and 60s. There was also an admissions quota for men and women. For every four men Harvard admitted, Radcliffe could admit one woman. I felt kind of swallowed up (laughs) in the, you know, initially. That's Nancy Coomer, class of 1952. Somewhat graded on our participation. And so I forced myself to speak a certain number of times, practically had panic attacks every time I, you know, raised my hand. But uh, many times, what I remember was that many times I had the experience of uh, wanting to say something and one of the men would say it first. Or I might say something and get brushed, brushed off Mm-hmm. And one of the men would say it and would say, oh, yes, that's a very good comment. These inequalities stretched into the next decade. I remember, it seemed silly that you couldn't come down to the first floor unless you were dressed. So if you were late for breakfast, you had to 
cram yourself. At least I think you could wear slacks in the dorm down to breakfast. We had to wait on tables, so do bells. That was Alison Bachman, was class of 1961. She, McDonald, Coomer, and many of the voices you're about to hear have been interviewed by a grassroots oral history project, started by members of the Radcliffe Club of San Francisco, the last remaining alumni club for Radcliffe only, to document the lived experiences of Radcliffe alums through the years, another effort to remedy Harvard's sometimes womanless history. Here's Alice Barbonell, class of 66, who started and heads the project. There wasn't any documentation, and, and we, you know, I, we believe that this careful documentation of what it was really like for whoever we interview is in a contribution, frankly, just to history, to history of co-education, to history of women at Harvard, all of the above. The oral history project and these women's full stories and interviews deserve their own episode. But for now, these brief snippets provide some insight into life at Radcliffe in the mid-20th century and the power differential with Harvard. Within Radcliffe, you also had problems. Racial segregation, challenges for commuters, less wealthy students and public school attendees, anti-Semitism, which existed at Harvard, too. Here's Bachman again. Well, I knew there were dorms where I would not have been welcome. I, I knew there were dorms where women from the private schools and what I would have called maybe the, snow, the snooty women or the women who wouldn't accept a little Jewish girl from, from the Bronx, well, <laughs> Manhattan, but, uh, but I didn't want to be friends with them. Of course, it was not all hardship and indignity. Radcliffe's leadership worked tirelessly to transform the college in spite of its lack of power, as Sally Schwager, a professor who I spoke to about her research on Radcliffe's origins last time, told me. Radcliffe, I think, grew and, and became much more of a woman-centric and um, kind of proto-feminist institution under the leadership of um, Edouise Comstock and subsequently Polly Bunting. So those, middle, those years in the middle part of the 20th century were tremendously important and um, I think it is that Radcliffe that we think of now, the Radcliffe under women's leadership and the Radcliffe producing women leaders and women scholars and women activists and institutional leaders. Um, and I want to just focus on leadership um, in a narrow sense. I'm thinking of, of you know, a wide range of intellectual leadership too teachers and scholars. It's that Radcliffe that I think now as, as, as I look back on women's colleges generally, it's that history that I think is very prone to disappear if we don't mm. study it and, um, and really celebrate it. Bachman, for instance, in her senior year took an engineering sciences class on computers because her friend wanted a lab partner. I learned enough in that class to know I love it, I can do it, and I can get a job. She later obtained a master's degree in computer science at Stanford and went to work on many important projects in the field. But for total operations processing system, and we were going to put the whole damn railroad on the computer. It was very visionary. Puma worked at a summer camp one summer as an undergrad. Run by the Jewish Family and Children's Service. And it was partly a therapeutic camp, partly a neighborhood kind of settlement house camp. Mm -hmm. And I just was uh, blown away. I, you know, that's, I, I, 
that's when, when I decided uh, early on that I was headed for social work. In which she had a 60-year career. On campus, Radcliffe undergrads joined and led student groups, like Mary Semetti, class of 62, who joined the public service-oriented Phillips Brooks House at Harvard. I was involved in, in PBH uh, and became uh, the first, I, I was the first woman president of PBH. I was the first woman to be a president of a Harvard Radcliffe undergraduate activity. They made lifelong friendships for protesters and activists like Jewel Taylor Gibbs, now a professor emeritus at UC Berkeley's School of Social Welfare, who was the only black woman in Radcliffe's class the, uh, in 1955. Roommates were segregated. I didn't like that. Yeah. And I think I told you that I was with a group yeah. that went to see the president, and the next year right. they started yeah. integrating them. So I take a lot of credit for that. I take mm-hmm. a lot of credit. And of course, Radcliffe was an institution in space and community that supported women in higher education. Alums from the time include the biologist Ruth Hubbard, class of 44, Pulitzer-winning poet Maxine Kuhlman, class of 48, science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin, class of 51, who is a personal hero of mine, and many, many more. Again, you'll hear these individual stories about Radcliffe in the mid-20th century in full in later episodes. These opportunities for women's education existed in part because of Radcliffe, which Schwager celebrates, but also in spite of Harvard, in spite of structural inequalities and a general attitude toward the purpose of women's education, not particular to Harvard, that did not always expect them to be leaders or professionals, a version of which existed at Radcliffe's origins in the 1870s when many saw the purpose of a woman's education to be raising and teaching the next generation of male citizens. Even when she found out she was chosen as PBHA president, Samedi recalled, And I was surprised, and uh, I, I have to say to my uh, eternal anger at the moment, historical moment is sort of silly, but at that, that I, I asked myself, as a woman, can I do this? I was elected and, and word got back that the deans at Harvard weren't happy about this, that, you know, that somehow there was an invasion of, of the Harvard sphere on the part of Radcliffe that they didn't appreciate. I was a bit cowed by that information. It didn't stop me from doing anything. This was the Harvard and Radcliffe that Mary Ingram Bunting, known to most in her life as Polly Bunting, encountered in 1960 when she became Radcliffe's president. Bunting arrived at Harvard after having been dean of Douglas College, the women's school at Rutgers. While at Douglas, she worked for the NSF on a study that found that 98% of the top IQ scorers in the country who did not attend college were women leading Bunting to point out a, quote, climate of unexpectation as to what women were likely to contribute on any intellectual frontier, end quote, a climate that was also in operation at Radcliffe. Bunting, herself a scientist, was a victim of this. She took the position as Dean of Douglas because when her husband, a Yale professor, died, Yale did not offer her a full-time position, even though she had lectured there as a microbiologist for several years. Bunting spent much of her life trying to make sure that that would not happen to future generations. We had our own president, Mary Bunting, who was the most incredible woman I've ever met. And her her house was open to us at any time. And she was just one, she was a feminist before that word existed. That's Susie Underwood, class of 1972, who you'll hear more from later as one of the interviewers in the oral history project I mentioned before. This podcast so far is focused on the history of Radcliffe College, but the present-day allegations of erasing Radcliffe's legacy center around the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, as you heard from Nancy Stieber in episode one. But in no way is the Institute a 
Harvard Radcliffe Institute. It's a Radcliffe Institute. It's the successor to Radcliffe College. And when it had been founded in 1960 uh, by Mary Bunting, uh, it was 1960 was long before the women's movement had made any headway in the United States. That second States. voice is Patricia Albier Graham, a professor emerita at the Graduate School of Education, who was dean of the Radcliffe Institute and vice president of Radcliffe College in the mid 1970s. Polly Bunting founded the institute in her first year as dean, then as the Radcliffe Institute for Independent Studies. And the idea was this was married, typically it was a married woman who had children who needed time and place to work on whatever it was she was interested in, the arts or whether it was research. So the Radcliffe Institute, in its first incarnation in the 1960s and 70s, provided stipends, community, and access to Harvard's resources to women who, often due to domestic responsibilities and social expectations, could not pursue professional or academic careers. Fellows from this early time include Maxine Kuhlman, Tilly Olson, and Anna Sexton. The idea among the legitimate Ivies was that they were elite institutions, and if they were elite by definition, that meant they were for men. This was a reflection of the larger culture that uh, in the well up into the last third of the 20th century, the role for most women was to stay home and preferably get married and have a family. And that women simply were not intended, uh, except for very rare ones, to uh, uh, engage in uh, extended education. College was okay, but not, not none of this graduate stuff. The idea behind the Radcliffe Institute was that women did belong in graduate schools and among leading intellectuals, and to combat this cultural expectation or lack of. During Graham's tenure, starting in 1974, the Radcliffe Institute tweaked its mission toward that end, supporting fellows who were expected to make significant contributions to and become leaders in their fields. By 1974, that had changed, and the women's movement was upon us all. And uh, the idea that the only women who should be supported were these part-time people who didn't really expect to have a paid career uh, brought the change, which I, which I endorsed. And so we went from about 40 women who came with the, the, the very small stipend to a much smaller number with a stipend that was equivalent to what an assistant professor would make. So it was possible for a woman who was working full-time to come as a fellow of the Radcliffe Institute and have, if not a comparable income, close to a comparable income. And it changed the attitudes that were, uh, that were about. At that time, uh, there were very few women on the faculty. I, since I was a full professor uh, in New York, the, I, when I came, I came as a full professor at Harvard. And uh, was, since I do history of education, I was put in the School of Education, and I was very pleased about that. But I was told subsequently by Judy Singer, who works in the provost's office, that uh, I was uh, number 13 since 1636 for tenured women at Harvard, which I think illustrates the way in which Harvard uh, has thought about women scholars. Polly Bunting, of course, was an advocate for women's graduate, but also undergraduate, education. As Radcliffe president, she worked tirelessly to get women full access to Harvard's resources, 
which in the 1970s ultimately resulted in the merger or the non-merger merger was to try to um, change this kind of strange position of Radcliffe within Harvard because you know Radcliffe began as a way to um, try to get women access to a Harvard education and they weren't really allowed to have full access so uh, Radcliffe was kind of um, built onto the side of the university in a sense. Speaking by the way is Mar Hicks. I'm an associate professor of history at Illinois Tech and I study the history of technology in particular the history of gender labor and computing. Um, I also was a Harvard undergrad Hicks, though. Harvard I class of 99, wrote their dissertation on the integration process of women into both Harvard and Oxford in the 60s and 70s. Suggestions of Radcliffe merging into Harvard are visible in Bunting's correspondence as early as 1965, when she was urging Harvard President Nathan Pusey to get rid of the quota on Radcliffe admissions, one woman to every four men. Bunting believed the best way to give women equal access to Harvard was for Radcliffe students to become Harvard students, for Radcliffe to structurally become part of Harvard so that women faculty, administration, and staff could have say and sway over their own education and force the university to take seriously the structural barriers restricting and what Bunting called the special features of women's higher education. Bunting called the merger, quote, fulfillment for Radcliffe, end quote. Of course, that push for equality was not just top-down, but also in part a response to the students' demands and activism. And then as things changed uh, over the course of the later 20th century, there was more and more of an outcry on the part of students, women's students in particular, to be more integrated into Harvard and to get the resources that Harvard students, men's students, were able to get, like living in houses that were better appointed, that had nicer dining halls, uh, more resources, were closer to campus and to all of the things that students needed to walk to, and just generally being seen as full and equal members of um, the university community. We protested every year at graduation. We had these armbands with equal signs on them. That's Susie Underwood again, class of 72, who you heard earlier speaking about polybunding. This was a time around 1969 of constant demonstrations, including the occupation of University Hall against the Vietnam War and for Harvard to establish Afro-American studies. Protests for equal treatment of Radcliffe students involved many of the same people, tactics, and silk screening techniques, hence the armbands. When we started protesting um, for equal, trying to get equal admissions, because at that time the ratio of men to women was four to one. There were 1,200 Harvard men in a class of 300 Radcliffe women. So we wanted equal admissions and we wanted to live in the Harvard houses, which were a lot nicer than the Radcliffe dorms. I mean, they've now spiffed up the Radcliffe dorms and made them look more like houses, but they only did that after the men were there. Uh, the other thing which my class is still upset about is that it was only after men were living up at Radcliffe, that they started having a shuttle bus going back and forth. Bunting herself had initial reservations about co-ed living, but President Pusey had announced in 1968 that there could not be co-residents until Harvard and Radcliffe were joined under one administration. So student pressure on the two to merge for co-residents and gender equality more generally increased. And by 1969, administration was seriously discussing a merger. Not everyone, however, agreed. The 
pushback came because women who, you know, worked in Radcliffe certainly saw how poorly the university had been treating them and women students for a very long time, was continuing to do so. The admissions quota, for example. And that's the reason the quota was kept low, because women were seen as, you know, inferior and also that they weren't going to need an education. What What's a woman going to do with an education was the idea, right? She's just going to go off and become a housewife, which, of course, was not true. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if that's what um, you implement into your admissions structures in colleges around the country and around the world. This structural and interpersonal discriminatory attitude toward women led many including students, faculty, and alum, to be concerned women will be forced to live within and abide by the rules of an institution designed exclusively for men. And they said, you know, having this sort of merger when women are so unequal in the university at the level of both faculty and students, it's not going to be a great thing because it's just going to mean that a small minority of women get kind of tossed in to this really um, difficult to navigate, highly discriminatory, larger pool. And it's going to mean, for instance, that women's students are so, so badly outnumbered when they get to live in the Harvard houses that it's going to be like just kind of grafting a few women on to an essentially male-focused society, male-focused culture, um, and male-focused educational institution. A committee of Radcliffe alumni even wrote a report highly critical of the merger for those reasons. There was also, you know, a lot of pride on the part of Radcliffe alums saying that Radcliffe um, started out uh, of necessity, but it had great value. It shouldn't just kind of be tossed aside. There was also, of course, male students and faculty who, for sometimes blatantly sexist reasons, opposed the merger. Amidst this controversy, a university-appointed committee to consider the merger released a report in 1970 calling for, quote, full and equal participation of Radcliffe students in the intellectual and social life of the university, end quote. There was a huge push for women's education at the time, second wave feminism was in full swing, and lots of other schools are going co-ed. But there was also perhaps a more cynical motivation from Harvard College. Harvard started to see at this point in time that co-education was very popular and Harvard, a big reason that Harvard did it, and they did it much later than most colleges, was they started to think they were losing out. They were losing good male applicants because men, young men were preferring to go to fully co-educational institutions. And so Harvard was um, basically afraid they were losing their market position um, by not finally going fully co-educational. Regardless of intent, the university report proposed steps, quote, short of merger. It was a compromise and an attempt by the then head of Radcliffe and the then head of Harvard to try to, um, you know, get both sides what they wanted. Radcliffe will keep its endowment property as well as control of admissions, the Radcliffe Institute, and the Schlesinger Library. But Radcliffe would give Harvard all income from its endowment and tuition, and Harvard would take over all day-to-day operations, living, instruction, and so on. 
These became the terms of the non-merger merger. Um, it was an attempt to give students what they wanted while also simultaneously making sure that um, the tradition of Radcliffe was not completely submerged and that the things that Radcliffe did and continued to do for women in the Harvard community and, uh, you know, kind of to support women within what was a community that had for a very long time discriminated against them and continued to discriminate against them and sort of shove them to the margins. Um, that that structure remained. And so that was why it was called the non-merger merger. The idea was Radcliffe was not going to be somehow fully subsumed and then submerged um, as part, just becoming part of Harvard University. The same Radcliffe alumni group from earlier was critical of this compromise too, arguing especially that the merger did not clearly promise any real administrative power or positions to Radcliffe. Nonetheless, the merger moved along. In spring of 1970, the university started an experiment in co-residency, in which 150 Harvard and Radcliffe students switched places in their houses. So by the time the experiment in my junior year came along, I was quite eager to win the lottery of women who would be allowed to move into a Harvard house. Because um, yeah. we felt slightly exiled out at Radcliffe Yard, and um, everything seemed more attractive. That's Nancy Steber again, class of 1971, who has been very active in the petitions against the Radcliffe Institute's rename. I was just by good fortune, uh, one of the small number of people selected to go down to Adam's house, as it, as it turns out. And it was a wonderful experience. But not everyone had a good experience with the co-residential housing, as Hicks found in her research. Simply by virtue of the small number of women at Harvard, even if nothing else, um, the women who were merged in and went into the co-residential men's houses, they were, you know, they were an oddity. They were gawked at. They were harassed. They were made to feel, in many ways, extremely unwelcome. The point of co-residency for many Radcliffe students, like Underwood, wasn't to live with men. I mean, the only problem with Radcliffe being separate is that the dorms were a mile away from classes instead of across the street, and the dorms weren't as nice. And I think that was the reason we protested for co-ed dorms, not because, or for me at least, I didn't care about living with the men or not living with them. If they had taken one house, one of the river houses and said, okay, this is gonna be just for women, this is a Radcliffe house, that would have been great. One could say something similar of the merger, that for many its purpose was increasing Radcliffe's structural authority and creating more opportunities for its students, rather than believing merging was an intrinsic good. On the flip side, many believe merging was not the best strategy to advance women's education at an institution dominated by men. Despite those misgivings, the corporation approved the non-merger merger in 1971. The admissions ratio became two and a half men to one woman the next year, in part in response to the gender imbalance in co-residential dorms. And the original non-merger merger agreement was renegotiated in 1977, such that Radcliffe maintained legal independence and regained some fiscal control. Graham was involved in renegotiating the merger and wanted Radcliffe to keep its endowment to support women's graduate education at the Institute. I was also intent, working as vice president of Radcliffe College, to work with the president of Radcliffe and the board members of Radcliffe in getting the best arrangement for a new relationship with Harvard that we could. And I was absolutely intent on Radcliffe keeping its endowment and not giving a penny to Harvard because that was the only endowment, only significant endowment 
that existed for women's higher education uh, beyond the uh, bachelor's level uh, that I knew of. Other than that, Harvard maintained responsibility for all students' housing and education, and the admissions offices combined in 1975, bringing an end to formal gender quotas. This agreement, along with numerous changes in years before and after, did give women a real foothold in Harvard, full access to university facilities, to classes and professors, a slowly balancing gender ratio, and more tenured women on the faculty, of which there were none in FAS in 1970. There was also a strong faction that thought that Radcliffe uh, really wasn't a college and it was time to get full access to the Harvard activities and full access as members of the Harvard community. I mean, it's pretty hard to be, uh, to think that Radcliffe was a serious college when it had no faculty. And that the logical thing to do was to take advantage of the great faculty that existed uh, at Harvard. And Harvard, of course, had a great faculty and a great reputation. And many things were available to Harvard students uh, that, uh, which, for, for which Radcliffe had limited access. So from a point of view of a, of a professional in higher education, Harvard was a serious institution, and Radcliffe was just an administrative entity. And in theory, Radcliffe continued to exist as a resource to support women, and its identity remained for thousands of alumni. But for Hicks, the compromise was at best a theory. In practice, as you probably know, it, it didn't exactly work. You know, there really isn't any Radcliffe without Harvard. And there has been for a very long time, I would say. Um, and, you know, this is just speaking for myself as somebody who um, went to Harvard Radcliffe around the turn of the last century. Uh, mileage may vary depending on what time period you went. Um, but by that time, you know, certainly Radcliffe was pushed to the periphery. Radcliffe was an afterthought. Um, it wasn't something that really seemed to um, loom large in the life of women in the university unless those women explicitly sought it out. And um, that's nothing to say, uh, that's not to say Radcliffe was doing anything wrong, not at all, but just to point out that pragmatically and on a structural level, this non-merger merger, -merger um, was in essence what a lot of the um, Radcliffe alums and Radcliffe um, leaders kind of feared it would be, which was just a, gen uh, a, a general um, kind of subsuming of Radcliffe as an institution into this larger um, male-dominated institution that didn't really have much use, honestly, for Radcliffe to be around anymore. Opportunities for women's staff and leadership roles for women in student organizations went away. Gender imbalances persisted for years in the undergraduate student body and extend to the present and tenure and tenure track faculty. The history of sexual violence at Harvard has been reported on extensively New episodes uncovered and unfolding each year, most recently centering around the anthropology department. I think that the people who articulated their fears about the merger, they were they were right for sure, but they were also, you know, kind of um, going against the tide. They were going against an irrevocable change, and they knew that. I think they were just trying to. Um, 
mitigate things or finagle the merger in such a way that maybe some of those opportunities for women could be preserved. And, um, you know, to an extent, they did that. That's one of the reasons that Radcliffe still exists in the form that it does. The Radcliffe Institute remained, renamed the Bunting Institute in 1978, and focusing more on postgraduate studies for women, as Graham said earlier. Mary Graham Bunting, who was still alive when I was at the Bunting. That's Linda Perkins again, whose research on black women at the Seven Sister College, as you heard about in episode one. She had a postdoctorate fellowship at the Bunting Institute for two years at the end of the 1970s. But she clearly understood that this... Uh, the difficulty that academic women and talented women face um, career-wise. So this institute was for women, originally for women whose careers have been interrupted by family or marriage or whatever. That wasn't the case with me because I came in and I was on a different fellowship funded through uh, NIE National Institute for Education. But for me, seeing these women who had all this brilliance and all this talent, who had been passed over for jobs. This was an incredible place. I mean, it's just some of the top women, you know, who came out of that place. I mean, Carol Gilligan was there, and, you know, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot was there. I mean, and in terms of artists, I mean, Alice Walker had been there. Uh, just, I mean, if you just look at the roster of the women who had been at the Institute, it's just like a who's who of very prominent women, academic writers and all of the rest. And it was just such an incredible place to be. It was a place where women could just be scholars and talk about their own work and not have to deal with, uh, you know, issues about gender discrimination and these kinds of things. Um, uh, and then we looked at people and, you know, people who went on to get jobs, people who had been denied tenure and, you know, all kinds of things. I mean, it was just very academically, intellectually rich. That Bunting Institute may not have aligned with the visions of many Radcliffe alumni from decades earlier. When Graham was simultaneously renegotiating the merger and shifting the Institute's direction to support postgraduate research, much of the opposition, she found, came from older generations. Many Radcliffe alumni of, from the earlier generations, you know, the class of 40 and 41, those years, many, some of those Radcliffe graduates went on to have very interesting, productive careers. But there was a significant subset who found joy, happiness, and contribution to society by getting married, uh, uh, having children, rearing the ch children with their husbands, or occasionally by themselves, uh, and uh, contributing to their community. Now, nobody wanted to denigrate those choices, but the choices of the women uh, who chose to stay home and be uh, play a helpful role in their home and their community, that was not identical to the purposes of the Radcliffe Institute. That was a different choice. It's a le completely legitimate and appropriate choice, but it's different. And for their Radcliffe to become the Radcliffe Institute was not something they were enthusiastic about. From 1977 until 1999, Radcliffe had an increasingly diminished role in undergraduate education, 
while the Bunting Institute continued to support women's academic and research goals. Then, in 1999, Radcliffe and Harvard underwent a full, final corporate merger, the year leading up to which was filled with heated debate and protest, including resignation of administrators and alumni association leaders over similar issues from the 1970s, the loss of a formal institution, financial assets, and programs supporting women, and the loss of an important legacy and identity. Proponents of the merger said it was the final step in achieving full gender equality, the culmination of Elizabeth Carey Agassiz's dream in the 1870s for women's education. Radcliffe's dean Linda Wilson at the time said it was cause for celebration, and University President Rudenstein said the 99 merger was, quote, the fulfillment of a journey Harvard and Radcliffe undertook together, end quote. I was in the class that was admitted to Radcliffe, but then graduated not from Radcliffe, but graduated from Harvard. So the change occurred while I was there. So I was admitted to a college um, that I never graduated from, and I graduated from a college that I never matriculated at. That's Mar Hicks again, who, in addition to being an expert on the non-merger merger in the 70s, lived through its culmination, having graduated in the class of 2000. Hicks had mixed feelings about the 1999 merger, as many did and continue to have. Um, when I got admitted to Harvard, I remember very clearly one of my high school teachers expressing um, a bit of sexist surprise that I had gotten in. Um, for whatever reason, he didn't, he didn't think that I um, deserved it, even though I was a straight-A student. And he said, oh, well, you didn't get into Harvard, though, did you? You only got into Radcliffe. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to say, especially since, as I pointed out before, Radcliffe always and only had higher admission standards than Harvard. And by the time I got in, of course, the admissions pool was not separate. Everybody, regardless of gender, was in the same admission pool. So it didn't apply. But it was a comment that was, um, you know, a little bit of a harbinger, because when I um, got to Harvard, I understood that sexism existed, of course, but I had only ever experienced it anecdotally, like through, you know, comments from some asshole teacher like that. I had never really experienced it on a deep structural level. And when I got to Harvard, I really did. And I started to understand structural sense of sexism and the centuries of um, power behind the structural sexism of today. And it was really an important lesson and really eye-opening. It was also a horrible thing to have to learn at, you know, as a teenager or at any age. Um, but yeah, I would have really, really liked for there to be more support for people who were not men at Harvard and um, for Radcliffe to have had maybe more funding and more ability to provide that support. They did to an extent, but as I said, you really had to seek it out it was not as integrated into the university as I'm sure Radcliffe would have liked or many students would have liked. I remember my first contact with Radcliffe was when they gave out t-shirts at the beginning of freshman year and sort of said, hi, we're here, like, know about us. And then for the rest of college, pretty much everybody made a joke about those t-shirts being the t-shirt that you wore on laundry day. And that was 
very, very indicative of the role of Radcliffe within the university at that point in time. And I'll also, you know, mention that when I got my diploma, and instead of saying, um, you know, Radcliffe, it said the same thing as all of my male peers, I was extremely happy about that. So it's, it's a very, you know, squirrely thing. As Hicks describes it, and as many commented in 1999, the final merger was at that point a fait accompli. But the 1999 merger agreement did promise Radcliffe's legacy would live on in the next iteration of the bunting, which became the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study that exists to this day and is the center of the latest controversy over Radcliffe's disappearance. The Radcliffe Institute was reimagined to be more like Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study, notably adopting an advanced study after Princeton, rather than Bunting's original independent study, and it would support cutting-edge work across all disciplines. I was myself a research assistant for a fellow at Radcliffe in 2019. In addition to this change, the Institute's 1999 founding mission statement included, quote, Within this broad purpose and in recognition of Radcliffe's historic contributions to the education of women and to the study of issues related to women, the Radcliffe Institute will sustain a continuing commitment to the study of women, gender, and society. End quote. Nancy Sieber is one of the inaugural fellows. And yes, it's kind of absurd how much her personal connection to Harvard intersects with the structural shifts that this episode has traced. Anyway. But I didn't realize until I got my fellowship that our year was starting something quite new. In the first place, I had fully half of my salary, actually more than half of my salary, uh, replaced. And that had not been the case before. Women had been um, given space to do their work, but not necessarily any funding. Uh, there was also funding. I applied for research money and I got two research assistants who were extremely useful. And uh, we had computers that had never been given before. So our year, we were, we were aware that we were funded through Harvard in a way that was going to facilitate our work as previous fellows had not been supported in the past. But I think even though also men, men were admitted for the first time, it still felt very much as if we were entering into the tradition of the bunting where women and uh, were being supported whether in creative or scholarly endeavors. And also um, there was clearly an emphasis on the selection of a certain number of fellows who were engaged in pursuing topics to do with gender and society. So while we were quite aware that, that things were different, particularly the admission of men as, as fellows, um, it did feel as if we were part of a, a longer tradition. In part due to Title IX concerns of a Radcliffe being only for women, and also perhaps in part to be modeled after and more recognized as an institute for advanced study like Princeton's, Radcliffe began accepting men as fellows. As a Radcliffe Dean of Science said a few years later, quote, my goal is to get the world's best scientists here. We would not have a first-rate science program if we didn't have men, and we would not have the best women here because the best women would want to be around the best scientists, end quote. But many protested this inclusion as a loss of an important space for women in a still unfriendly academic and professional world, a strange inversion in which, for women to theoretically achieve equality by Radcliffe fully merging with Harvard, this all-woman space has opened itself up to men. By the end of the year, Stieber realized that the direction the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies, newly constituted, was going to move would be toward, very much toward, a jewel in the crown of Harvard, um, 
and quite parallel to the Princeton Institute for Advanced Studies. So that was a disturbing shift that we could see was in the winds. Which brings us to the crux of the controversy in 2021 over not only the Harvard Radcliffe Institute name, but also the Institute's mission, which some see as no longer supporting women or scholarship on women, gender, and society as a betrayal of that 1999 commitment. That the core identity of the Institute no longer includes any mention of women, gender, and society. This controversy raises questions of identity and mission in history and, as Hicks put it, It's sort of the logical conclusion of a lot of the um, merger moves that have gone over, gone on over the years. I think it does mean something that they decided to put the Harvard name first. In some ways, that makes a lot of sense because Harvard is the bigger, wealthier um, institution from which Radcliffe, you know, uh, kind of grew. On the other hand, as a sign of respect and a sign of, um, you know, kind of understanding the contentiousness of the change and the history of Radcliffe, I think it really would have behooved um, the people making that decision to think about not putting the Harvard name first. So I can certainly understand why people um, who are associated with Radcliffe might feel this is a little bit disrespectful or a bit of an erasure of some of their their history and the accomplishments of Radcliffe in the past and the present. What is at stake in the renaming of the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study when Harvard and Radcliffe have been merged in some form for 50 years? Who defines Harvard's and Radcliffe's identity and who writes those histories? Are they still womanless? And if so, why? That's next time on The Annex. They can very much be seen as a sort of a part of an older tradition of saying, well, okay, we're merging women in, we're all equals now. Um, doesn't It doesn't matter. We can put Harvard's name first or second. It doesn't matter anymore. And that really makes a mistake about the ongoing structural sexism within the university and, you know, in the wider world where, you know, it does make a difference. The Annex is a podcast from 15 Minutes, the Crimson's weekly magazine. It is reported, written, hosted, and produced by a very sick-sounding me, Mateo Wong. Huge thank you to Olivia Oldham and James Bicalis for editing, and to the amazing Ian Chan for music.